0: back in the early part of the summer when we started this teaching series on the New Testament book of Galatians I had someone ask about the concepts of Christian freedom and grace and they were having a difficult time understanding the nature of this freedom that is ours in Jesus Christ that Saint Paul talks about and they wondered if this was a license to do kind of you know whatever we wanted to do Grace and Christian freedom are difficult concepts, and they were even for the people to whom Paul was preaching in his day in the first century. You see, the world into which Christian faith was born was a pagan world that was morally and spiritually bankrupt. And the teachings of Jesus were radical, calling people to live very differently than the world around them. And one of the biggest differences was being motivated and controlled by an ethic. Of love for one another instead of a passion to one's own desires so freedom in Christ instead of adherence to the Old Testament law was a new idea along with this idea of grace instead of judgment so people struggled even as we do today to know where the lines were at one point in Paul's ministry he even says should we sin more so that we can have more grace in our lives and then he answers the question by saying absolutely not that's how, that's not how it works. Grace is not an excuse to abuse our freedom, and it's a way to live so that it enhances, there is a way to live so it enhances the freedom that we commit ourselves to when we come to know Jesus Christ. So today we're continuing this series we've been calling Set Free, and we'll be laying out the new ethic of love that Jesus taught as a part of Christian freedom. So stay tuned for that in just a bit. In the first verse of Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul makes this statement. He says, so Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free. So what exactly is Christian freedom that Paul talks about so much in this book of Galatians? In order to help us understand the answer, I'd like to borrow a definition and an illustration used by John Piper, a pastor and author. He says, freedom is the opportunity, the ability, and the desire to do that which will give you the most joy 10,000 years from now. The definition suggests that true freedom has four parts. It has opportunity, ability, desire, and lasting joy. For true freedom to exist, all four of those things need to be in place. Let me give you an illustration. Let's suppose that you decide to go skydiving. That is, you wanna go up in an airplane, jump out, land on the ground, walk away with nothing broken, and a smile on your face, okay? After doing some research, you learn about a skydiving school nearby where you can take lessons on a Saturday morning and then go skydiving in the afternoon. So early one Saturday morning, you get in your car and you head for the airport knowing that the class starts at 11 a.m. What you didn't expect was a huge traffic jam on the highway. Cars are backed up for miles in every direction. Even though you left home at 9, by 10 you have gone less than a mile, by 10.30 another half mile, by 11 you're still on the expressway. Same thing at 11.30. Same thing at noon. By 12.30 you're still stuck on the highway and you look up and you see planes from the skydiving school flying overhead and with sadness and some frustration, you realize that you're not gonna go skydiving today. Are you free to go skydiving? No, not on that day. You lack the opportunity even though you have the desire. Let's play this story out another way. The time, uh, this time the highway's clear, you make it to the gate of the skydiving school well before 11 a.m., but the man at the gate asked if you have reserved a spot in the class, and you answer, no, didn't know that I needed to do that. I'm sorry, he says, we're full today. How about next Saturday? We're full then, too. The next, same thing, the next, also full. When can I take the class, you ask? Well, we're booked, for the, we're booked solid for the next 10 years. Are you free to go skydiving? No, because you lack the ability to learn what you need to know. In this case, desire and opportunity are not enough. Let me run the story a third time. This time the expressway's clear and you're able to take the class. Later that afternoon, you board the plane for your first parachute jump, and when the plane reaches the proper altitude, the door opens, the light flashes, and the instructor says, jump. But when you look out the door and see how far away the ground is, you suddenly change your mind. You don't want to jump out of that plane. Looks dangerous. You have the opportunity, you have the ability, but the desire has now just disappeared. So the friendly instruction instructor gives you a push, and out the door you go screaming all the way. Are you free? No, because you didn't want to do it and you had to be coerced against your will. Let's work this story one more time. You make it to the airport, you take the class, you go up in the plane, the light goes on, you happily jump into the air as you plummet to the ground at over 100 miles an hour. The thought occurs to you that this is the most exciting thing you've ever done. You see the ground rushing toward you and you're not afraid because you have two parachutes, a main chute and a reserve chute. And when the moment comes, you pull the ripcord, but nothing happens. Calmly, you pull the cord on the reserve chute. Something fouls in the line, and the chute will not deploy. Now you begin to scream for help, but no one can hear you. And even if they could, no one's close enough to help. See, the outcome is certain. Are you free? Yes. But your freedom has led to a tragic end. As this illustration graphically shows, freedom is more than simply being able to do whatever we want to do. True freedom is the opportunity, the ability, and the desire to do those things that will bring us deep joy in the future. Many things that people do in the name of freedom actually uh, cause their own destruction. And that's why Christ followers should never envy the freedom of non-believers. Often we look at people who sleep around and we think, hey, that must be fun. Or we envy those who have built their lives on greed or pride or power or prestige or materialism or violence or self-indulgence or the pursuit of wealth or the acquisition of worldly fame or the practice of moral perversion. And we think, hey, that might be a fun way to live. But how wrong we are. Some people have jumped from the plane of sexual freedom, only to discover that their chute won't open. They've jumped from the plane of material success, only to face their own destruction. They've jumped from the plane of materialism, or pride, or power, or self-indulgence, and now they are free in a free fall that will ultimately end in their own destruction. See, here's an important truth. Christian freedom is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. As Martin Luther, the great reformer, put it, freedom is not the right to do what we want, but the power to do what we ought. The truly free person is the one who has the desire and the ability to look into the future and to judge the alternatives and then choose to do those things that will make them truly happy, In the Christian sense, true freedom is not doing whatever you dream of doing or acting on every wild idea. It is choosing to do what God approves because you know that's what's going to bring you the greatest happiness and the deepest joy in eternity. Those who know the Lord have the power by the Holy Spirit to to choose that which produces the highest and the best and eternal good. Now, the challenge facing all of us is this. We're free, but what do we do with that freedom? In our study of the book of Galatians, I have repeatedly mentioned the Judaizers. This is a group of so-called Christian leaders who came from a Jewish background who clearly were trying to represent the apostles in Jerusalem. They were influencing these young, non-Jewish Galatian believers to become circumcised and live under the, the law of Moses as a means of pleasing God. And every time I've mentioned the Judaizers, it has been to criticize them. But in today's message, I would like to say a good word on their behalf. But in order to do that, I want to give us some background to understand them better. uh, Because I think if we understand the moral condition of the Roman Empire into which... The Apostle Paul is speaking and the Judaizers are, are, are active and speaking to these Galatians in, this, in the first century that will better understand and have a way to uh, comprehend uh, exactly what they're trying to do. Now, we like to talk about the moral decline of Western civilization in the 21st century. But we need to know that things were much, much worse in the first century during the time of the Apostle Paul. It is hard for us to easily grasp how morally degraded the Greeks and the Romans were, but this is the culture into which Paul is speaking. Regarding sexual ethics, it was a period of lawless chaos. One writer describes it as an age when shame seems to have vanished from the earth. The famous orator Demosthenes declared, we keep mistresses for our pleasure, concubines for the day-to-day needs of the body, but we have wives in order to produce children legitimately and to have a trustworthy guardian of our homes. Almost every famous Greek figure had a mistress. The list included Alexander the Great, Aristotle, Plato, Pericles, Sophocles. Seneca commented that chastity is simply a proof of ugliness. And he also added that innocence was not rare, it was non-existent. Modesty was unknown. The greater the infamy, the wilder the delight, said the Roman historian Tacitus. Homosexuality was also found in every layer of society, from the highest to the lowest. Rome learned this lifestyle from the Greeks. J.J. Dollinger referred to it as the great national disease of Greece. Evidently, Plato and Socrates both practiced Homosexuality. Historians tell us that 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexual, including Julius Caesar. The author William Barclay offers this telling summary. He says, It has been said that chastity was the one completely new virtue which Christianity introduced into a pagan world. And so that's the backdrop that we must, in which we must view these Judaizers, Knowing the immorality of Rome and Greece, they thought the only way to combat all of this immorality was with rules, 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 and more rules. Their diagnosis was correct. Their prescription was wrong. Twice in Galatians 5, Paul declares that believers are now free. In verse 1, he says, so Christ has truly set us free. In verse 13, freedom. he says, for you have been called to live in freedom freedom is a wonderful word but it is also a dangerous concept true freedom leaves us with all sorts of choices to make it requires self-discipline or it soon disintegrates into into anarchy so in what sense are christians now free here are several answers to that we are free from the guilt of sin we are free from the penalty of sin we are free from the shame of sin we are free from the power of sin and we're free from the power of the law to condemn us therefore we can come to god at any time on the basis of the shed blood of christ with the certainty that god accepts us and our freedom is first and foremost a spiritual freedom that opens up a new and everlasting relationship with god but freedom doesn't mean that we don't struggle with sin we are not yet free from the presence of sin that won't happen until we stand face to face Before Jesus Christ, nor are we free from the pool of the flesh that leads us to sin We are simply free from the bondage of trying to please God through ancient ceremonies and religious rituals And we're free from the overwhelming guilt of sin That is like a mighty weight around our necks ever pulling us downward But sin itself remains with us and sometimes even in us. Are we free? Yes But freedom can be misused The next part of verse 13 explains what this freedom means negatively and positively. Paul says, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Cautioning us not to satisfy or indulge our sinful nature, Paul applies a military term that refers to a base of operations that an army establishes in enemy territory. And from this base of operations, the army can launch attacks in various directions. Now, Paul is saying that we can misuse our freedom by allowing the flesh to have a base of operations in our life from which all sorts of sinful actions spring. And that raises a key theological question. Exactly what is the flesh, sometimes called the sinful nature, that may lead us into sin? This term does not refer to our literal, physical Flesh and bones it refers to the fallen human nature that we received from Adam we are born into a fallen human nature and it stays with us in one form or another until the day we die even though we are redeemed and made new creatures by Christ Jesus the flesh is always with us it's always trying to pull us down it's always trying to pull us back into the world it's always enticing us to every sort of moral and spiritual compromise It is the flesh that pulls us toward things like lust, and anger, and hatred, and bitterness, and violence, and cheating, and adultery, and perversion, and malice, and envy, and greed, and every other sin that we can think of. One writer defines the flesh as the inner desire for selfish gratification at the expense of both God and other people. It's a pretty good definition because it focuses on the selfishness of the human nature. There's something in all of us that says, go ahead, you deserve this. You've earned it. No one can stop you now. Even though we know that the action itself may be sinful, the flesh loves to be pampered. And it whines like a little baby when it wants something. And when our flesh throws a tantrum, we're tempted to give in. But that giving in leads to sin, to compromise, and eventually often to outright evil behavior. Here's the tricky part, the flesh attacks us anytime, anywhere, that's why we can be listening to a wonderful message one moment and have evil thoughts in our mind the next. We can be a witness for Christ uh, one moment and we can be with the next breath breathing out obscenities at our children. The same hand that reaches out in love to help somebody can knock somebody to the floor. Don't ever underestimate the power of the flesh. If you do, you will find yourself falling into all sorts of sin. I wanna pause for a moment, and I wanna introduce you to a new word that we haven't used in this message series, but it it appears um, uh, here in principle. The word is antinomianism. Doesn't sound very good right from the start, does it? Well, it's not. The prefix anti means against, and nomos means law, and literally antinomian is someone who is against the law. In church history, the term has come to refer to one of the most ancient of Christian heresies, a dangerous strain of false teaching that has recurred in every generation and is widely held even in the church today. An antinomian is a person that believes that salvation by grace means that we are free to do whatever we like and God won't care. Such a person excuses evil by saying, Hey, God will forgive me. An antinomian claims that God's grace allows them to do whatever they want, whenever they want, without paying any consequences. And some people use this logic to excuse adultery. Hey, I know it's wrong, but God will forgive me. Or maybe even a casual divorce. God just wants me to be happy. Or an affair. I have needs, you know. Or theft. I deserve this. Or anger. God understands when I lose my temper. Or even abuse. She had it coming to her. See, where this logic prevails, anything goes. There are no limits, no restraints. It's a convenient theology because you can claim to be a Christian and yet ignore the moral teachings of the Bible. It says, accept Christ and then go ahead and live as you like. It is pure, undiluted paganism dressed up in a Christian costume. How easy it is for all of us to justify our sin. We can use grace as a cover for our sinful behavior and then dare God to not forgive us. Let me say this as clearly as I can. Anyone who says that a Christian can do evil and God doesn't care is a liar. That person is doing the devil's work and in fact may be a tool of the devil. I've already mentioned that Christians sometimes envy the wicked, which is why we feel the need to justify our sin with antinomian excuses. But remember this, when you see people living together, or you watch a movie or a television show that glorifies immorality, what you are watching is a fantasy. It's not reality, because to indulge the flesh is to live in slavery to it. You are not free at all. You are no better than a brute animal acting on its animal instincts. Because biblical freedom is never freedom to sin, It is freedom from sin. It's the power to overcome. It's the power to get up and fight the battle again and again and again. And here's what the Apostle Paul says in verse 14. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is a better way to live than indulging the flesh. Paul says we need to love other people as we love ourselves. We're to serve one another in love. We are set free from the slavery of sin by the power of Jesus Christ and having been set free, we are called to be slaves to one another in love for the sake of Christ. As the songwriter Bob Dylan used to say, you gotta serve somebody. And in this case, we are freed from our servitude to sin and Satan so that we can serve Jesus Christ by serving other people. The emphasis on love is all important because it's not the law on the outside but it is the love on the inside that makes the difference. Here's where the Judaizers made their fundamental mistake. They thought the only way to change human behavior was by adherence to a system of laws. But laws can never change the heart. Christianity works because it changes people from the inside out. When Christ comes into our life, he changes everything. And the love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who lives within us, Paul says. And it was love that motivated God to send his Son to earth, for God loved the world so much that he gave his Son. Christ came from heaven to earth to demonstrate God's love to us. Love for others says, I'm going to take care of you and your needs. I'm going to even reach beyond myself to do that. Someone has defined narcissism as the inability to commit to anything beyond yourself. And you and I know we live in a world filled with narcissism today. But true love sees a need and then moves to meet that need even at great personal cost. In his final message to his disciples before his crucifixion, Jesus declared that love was to be the distinguishing mark of his followers. He said, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. We might have said it differently. We might think that, you know, to prove to the world that we belong to Jesus is attending the right church, or saying the right prayers, or reading certain Christian books, or attending the right school, or dressing the part, but Jesus said that one, the only way the big way to spot his disciples was by the way they loved each other. The gospel changes the heart. And a changed heart always leads to changed relationships. Have you ever thought about the statements in Scripture that in the New Testament alone that encourage us to serve each other? There's a whole list. Let me just share a couple of them with you. Here's just a few. Share each other's burdens. Build each other up. Teach each other. Make allowance for each other's faults. Encourage each other. Pray for each other. Confess your sins to each other. Teach and counsel each other. Greet each other in Christian love. Motivate each other to acts of love and good works. Accept each other. Encourage each other. Build each other up. Love each other with genuine affection. Take delight in honoring each other. Be kind to each other. Submit to one another. Serve each other in love. And the list goes on. All of these each-others-or-one-another passages are reflections and amplifications of the great commandment that Jesus gave us to love each other. Sometimes it's hard to explain or even to describe what that means, to serve each other in love, and I suppose this is one of those truths that you know it when you see it. Love is better experienced than it is defined. So I commend these words to you for your consideration. Three words, love one another. Write them on your Bible. Paste them on your mirror so you can see them every day of the week. We would all be more like Jesus and we would all be better servants if we lived by those three words instead of living for ourselves. Well, the final verse in this passage says this. It's verse 15. If you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. Paul ends these this short passage with just a solemn word of warning. Because freedom leads in two directions, we can either use our freedom as an excuse to sin or we can use the freedom as a means to serve others, and if we choose self-indulgence, we risk not only destroying friendships, but we risk tearing apart the body of Christ. Two simple equations make the choice crystal clear. Freedom or liberty plus love equals service to others. That same freedom or Liberty minus the love equals a freedom to sin now seen in this light we can understand how love fulfills the whole law it is the lack of love that causes people to hate their parents commit murder commit adultery steal lie covet it's the lack of love that leads to bitterness and to anger and to threats and to verbal and physical abuse it is the lack of love in the presence of self-centered egotism that leads to pushing other people around Demanding our own way arguing arguing over minor issues and dividing ultimately the body of Christ If we truly loved our neighbor these sins would be impossible because where God's love reigns sin can't take up residence Now I've heard of churches that have split over which translation of the Bible to use. There have been churches that have split over whether to use piano or organ in worship, splits over the use of technology, time of the worship service. Lots of insignificant things have destroyed the body of Christ. And unfortunately, these church wars tend to include gossip and rumors and personal attacks and all the other stuff that goes with it. But the cost in terms of our Christian witness is high. Christians have never been very good at fighting fair. We let small disagreements become major issues, and we elevate secondary matters to the level of the deity of Christ. When we bicker, when we quarrel, we inevitably harm the body of Christ, and our bitter arguments eventually, you know, become more important than Jesus himself. Here's what happens when churches fight and argue. They put an end to Christian peace, they destroy the work of God. They cause the church to turn inward. They cause new believers to not want to be a part of the church. They dishonor the Lord. They grieve the Holy Spirit. They stir up sinful tendencies on all sides. They cause weak Christians to give up the faith in despair. They force people to take sides on things that are not biblical. They injure the reputation of the church. They confirm the criticism of the skeptic that says the church is just a bunch of hypocrites. They cause the enemies of the gospel to rejoice and they send the message to the world that God loves you, but we hate each other. Now, you may say, we don't experience that at Redeemer, and we don't, by the, for the most part. That is not one of the culture experiences here. But you know what, I'm coaching two churches that fit this profile, exactly. And it, unfortunately, is in a lot of churches. In the end, these things will destroy the church. Hatred, envy, power plays, vicious words, insisting on our own way, these are things that can only harm God's church. There can be no victory. How can we win, Paul says, when we consume each other? Verse 15 describes, Paul's describing Christian cannibals who are destroying each other. Wild beasts that attack each other until nothing's left. May God deliver us from that kind of destructive and unchristian behavior. Well, let me wrap up today's message with four statements that really just summarize the message. First, Christian freedom is not the right to do what we want, but it is the power to do what we ought to do. Secondly, Christ, uh, Christian freedom is not guided, that is not guided by love soon descends into, into, into destructive self-indulgence. And three, when we act with love toward other people, we have fulfilled the law of God. And four, God's love and bitterness don't coexist, they cannot coexist. So we go back to where we started this morning with the statement Christian freedom is the opportunity, it's the ability, it's the desire to do those things that will give us the deep happiness and great joy. For years to come. All of us want that kind of freedom. We're born for it. We're made for it And we're created by God to enjoy it It is a freedom that goes far beyond the cheap substitutes offered by the world So my brothers and sisters we are called to christian freedom and it is for freedom That christ has set us free. Thanks be to god Amen